Hello friends, welcome back. This week is a very, very interesting one. Mancon Magan is our guest, who is a writer, traveller, documentary maker, a Gaelgore and a polyglot. He is a very necessary presence in Irish culture right now, as interest in the Irish language and pre-Christian Ireland grows and grows. I was introduced to his work by my girlfriend late last year and was pulled by his incredible passion for the Irish language and myth. He describes in powerful detail how the language provides us with a much more rich, mystical and interconnected perspective on the world compared to the English language that was forced onto us. His recent work can be seen as a plea to ponder the significance of an island losing its native language and as a rising call to explore the Irish language and myth with greater curiosity if one feels the interest. This podcast covers all of this in more detail and insightfully highlights how the portal of language and myth can push us to feel a tighter connection to our ancestors and to our land. This conversation was a real pleasure for me and I hope it was just as powerful for you too. If you'd like to learn more about Mancon's work, please see the link below in the description. Thanks to Mancon for his time and thanks to you for listening. All the best. Mancon Magan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making time for us. What's the crack? How are you keeping? Good. Thank you, Jim. I spent the afternoon chainsawing trees down, so I'm happy having a rest. <laughs> Were you chainsawing solo? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, whatever, 23 years ago now, I planted this woodland on my land, on my like on my 10 acres here in Westmead, uh, an oak forest. So I'm thinning out, just picking which are going to be the ideal oaks in 100 years time. So just okay. getting out of the others. Cool. And um, like, what's your, like, is your process just asking the neighbours there? Is it like you just going on your own research? How do you make that decision? Yeah. So, I mean, when I came, when I bought the land 25 years ago, I realised I've always wanted an oak wood. So, and I had just bought like 10 acres of drumliny field, of grassy field that had probably sheep on it. So I planted these oaks with a little bit of Scots pine on them. And, um, uh, you know, they've now grown into a dense forest. But the thing is, you do need to manage that woodland. And now there's this situation, you know, luckily you need to get a license before you start thinning, before you start chainsawing trees. And there's been this backlog. So I've been waiting for about three years to do this. So I've been keen to get into okay. it. Okay. Waiting for the license. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks for that. Um, Mancon, I presume a lot of our listeners would have heard of you and would know you, but for those unfamiliar with you, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Yes. So I was brought up in Dublin, in Donnybrook, born in 1970. And then I spent, uh, like, from about the age of 18 on, uh, onwards, I just would have travelled. I lived in in, uh, in India and Africa and South America. Um, and then in about 1996, I started making TGKR programmes, travel documentaries about all the places I'd lived in. I spent about a decade doing that from 96 until about 2007. Then I started looking at the Irish language. I mean, Irish language was my first language, um, okay. but I started having, having learned like French and German and Spanish and then learned a bit of Mandarin and, and Arabic to make the TV programmes. I went back to the Irish language um, with a series called No Berla, where I tried to go around Ireland just trying to speak the Irish language without speaking a word of English. Um, and then I started writing travel books about my travels long ago and about the places I'd made the TV documentaries about. And then only about three years ago now, two and a half years ago, I had a book out called 32 Words for Fields. 
um, mm. about the hidden insights in the Irish language. And that seemed to have really catapulted people's attention more than the TV mm. documentaries or the radio series or the podcast I do or the um, the countless like newspapers. I've been writing for the Irish Times since about 2006. Um, and so after that book, 32 Words for Field, then I had another book called this year, well, book in between for kids called Tree Dogs, Banshee Fingers, in other words, for people, for, uh, for nature. Thank you. Tree Dogs, Banshee Fingers, in other words, for nature. And then in October this year, I had a book called Listen to the Land Speak. So if the first book was looking at the insights the Irish language can give us, the second book was looking at the insights that the Irish language gives into the natural world and to nature. And then the third book you um, was listening to Land Speak was about the insights that the landscape and mythology gives us into ourselves and our past. Yeah. Thanks for that, Mancon. The, what I like, what pulled me initially about you is I resonate a little bit with myself where I spent some time abroad, some time abroad. But what really fascinated with me uh, fascinated me with you is how you spent all this time abroad, like making traveling documentaries and really showing such a strong interest in, in culture and such a strong interest in uh, different approaches to spirituality and to something deeper, like something that can't really be measured. And I thought it was so interesting that you, you travel to so many places, so many places that people want to go to, you know, like places like Peru and in, in place, like sacred places in India. And then you came back to Ireland and it's almost like I kind of want to get that process from you where as you're going to these places, are you ever considering, because I just know for myself, like I used to think of like the Egyptian culture and uh, the culture like with Machu Picchu. And I used to put these like kind of civilizations and these cultures and these heritages at such a high, such a high level like these, like there's nothing, there's nothing similar where I am. And if ever I wanted some sort of kind of wisdom, I would go. I would look further afield to something going on in India and something going on in um, Tibet or something going on in South America. So I'd love to know when you were making these documentaries abroad and just learning all of this abroad. At what point did it did it kind of did it uh, invite you to say actually it's probably a home or yeah? Can you talk to me about that process? Yeah, yeah, it took me a long time. I was interviewing Bob Quinn today, who was this great um, film director and writer who wrote The Atlantean Book. This is the first man in the 1980s to make this idea in the early, late 70s, early 80s, to realise that we were actually Atlantic people and we had more in common with North African and Islamic culture and Arabic culture than, than, than mainland Europe. And uh, he said to me, like he's now 87, he says to me, he says he left... Um, he says, I wanted to leave Ireland. I wanted to leave Ireland. I was sick of Ireland. I felt so constrained. So I went to the Gweltacht. That was him back in the 60s. I didn't have that sort of insight. I just fled. I did know that I felt constricted in Ireland, as so many people do in their home place. And particularly when it's a kind of a small island that's not really rooted to the mainstream, especially, which, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, which was, which, which Ireland definitely was then a backward place. Um and so I fled and I went off, as you say, to Africa, to South America and India, always looking for other answers. And just like you, being amazed by these other cultures and blown away by them. Um, I mean, I had this very strong upbringing in Ireland with my grandmother, who was this Republican revolutionary and steeped in history and culture. And then her relations, the O'Rahillys, um, were these Celtic scholars, these Gaelic scholars who had translated the first 
the manuscripts, the for the old Gaelic manuscripts, who were the first people to translate them into English. So they were. Um, I had in a sense that we came from this very profound culture, but uh, like any teenager, you just want to escape from all that. You want to get rid of it, and so um, you know, I was I knew there was wealth here, culture, but I didn't know how to express it. And all mm. I, as a kid, I was one of these people who had this deep connection with with spirit, with the landscape, with with the entities that are sort of beyond the physical world. So I was trying to mm-hmm. connect up with those. Um, and uh, I, you know, it was really, it probably was eight years of um, of looking around the world before I thought, I was actually, I was underground in a cave with the Yami people on Lanyu Island off Taiwan, about 90 miles off Taiwan. When it suddenly hit me, one of the Yami elders said to me, he said, look, I don't know your language and you don't know mine, but I'm going to sing you a song because we're a coastal people. He said, we're the, you know, they were, the Yami people are part of those Pacific tribes like the Maori and the, the Hawaiians of, of Easter Island. Uh, sorry, the, the people of Easter Island and the Hawaiians. And so he said, we are coastal people. And he says, we don't know much about you. I don't know anything about you. He said, Monkan, I don't know where you're from, but most likely you two are a coastal people because most people around the world are. So if I sing you one of my birth songs, one of the creation myths of my people, you will connect to it. And the minute he did start singing, I had these goosebumps all over me because I was reminded of my granny introducing me to so many Blasket Islanders, people from the island, the Blasket Island off the southwest coast of Kerry in the 1970s and hearing them sing their songs. And these were people who lived on an isolated island who were still gathering up sea seagull eggs, you know, and climbing down the fish, the, sorry, the cliff on ropes they had made of um, seaweed and horsehair to gather eggs and to, and to catch wild birds. And they were still hunting for seals and for fish. They were basically living a semi- hunter-gatherer lifestyle and singing these songs that were really ancient. And so suddenly a light bulb turned on inside me and I said, my God, I've spent all these years with my brother making documentaries with the Tarahumara Indians in Mexico or with the Bedouin or with the Berber or with the Inuit people up in Greenland um, or with the Masu and the Nahi, these matriarchal tribes in China. And I thought, wait there, it's all at home. It's all at home. So that was why I sort of put my tail between my legs and returned home bought these 10 acres in Westmead that I'm sitting on now, planted my woodland. And I thought, I need to put down roots and I need to really engage um, with my own culture and people. And so you see that that time away was essential for you to authentically connect with back home. For me, it was, as I say, with Bob Quinn, the great film director, he knew immediately that the culture and the richness was in the Gwaltacht, was in these Irish-speaking mm. areas. But me, it took a long time. Possibly because my granny had given me the deep connection with the Gweltacht area. Now, we spent a quarter of every year in this, the south, the West Kerry Gweltacht, the Kirkogrina, which is, means the seeds or the lands of the goddess Divinia. And uh, so I had that. I had the wisdom. But of course, as a teenager, you turn away from the wisdom. Um, you know, and Bob Quinn and others in Dublin were starved of that. So they felt the wisdom was in the Gweltacht. So I had to turn away from, just because it was a complex legacy that my grandmother gave me. Yes, she was deeply connected and her family before her, right back to her great, great, great granduncle and my great granduncle four generations back, Aegon O'Rahilly, the last poet of the old Bardic school. 
So we had that, but she also had a profound violent streak in her. Like she was this Republican revolutionary. She had killed people. She had intimidated juries. She had, she was, you know, she was still in the 1980s supporting the hunger strikers and the IRA in, in Belfast and Derry. And I did not have share those same feelings of that she had of belief in a in blood sacrifice and in a violent struggle for, for our independence. That's interesting. And, and it took you a while because I remember hearing you in a previous conversation that it was almost like your relationship with the grandmother, but also in 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 connection with that, your relationship with the Irish language was a little um, complex, right? It, it, it seems like just from your writing recently that there's been a, a renewed perspective on the Irish language for you. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, my granny was the one who taught us Irish, who's made sure that my mum and dad never spoke a word of English to us until we were four or five, because it was so important to her. And then, I mean, my mum and dad did, did a huge feat of keeping that alive, obviously, in Donnybrook in Dublin, the heart of Dublin, rearing Irish speakers was tricky. Um, but with that, she had this idea that every word of Irish was a bullet aimed at England. So there was this violent element. So it really did take me to walk away from the Irish language for a while and then to realise, no, wait there. We have this connection with this language that is whatever, two and a half, maybe 3,000 years old and connects us back to the to our ancestral people, the people who are who we know we were from our DNA, these Bronze Age people who arrived four, four and a half thousand years ago. And so within the language and within our the culture that goes with it and the beliefs and the mindset of the gods are is this wisdom that roots us to something so much more profound than the English language, which was, you know, just created by a group of warring Germanic tribes who turned up in England in the sixth century. Um, you know, that's so there, like English is whatever, a thousand, thousand two hundred, maybe a thousand five hundred years old. But um Irish is like ancient, you know, it's at least three thousand years, but really it goes back. It, its beauty is it kept so much of the old Indo-European consciousness, this language that was first created by these nomadic people five thousand years ago. Because Irish was isolated in the margins, in the mountains and the cliffs, we kept not only the words, but the mindset and the gods and the spirit and the deep connection with landscape that was mm. that had always been part of that culture. Ah, it's great, Mankind. And growing up as like a native Irish speaker, did you even notice when you would speak Irish compared to when you would speak English that there was almost this uh, poetry or this uh, a deeper meaning with the language? Or did it take you a while again to maybe learn other languages and spend time away? I, I'm interested how that feels to speak the language. Yeah. So for me, there's a key element of the Irish language and then the Gwaeltacht. And if you speak the Irish language in the Gwaeltacht, so these Irish speaking areas, which are, you know, where the uh, where, where the language has always been spoken, as I said, for these thousands of years, that is something very different from speaking Irish in Dublin, a city that really hasn't spoken it. You know, you could say since the Vikings, the Vikings arrived in the 9th, 10th century, spoke a version of, of Danish, of Viking, a Danish Norwegian language. And then English came along not too long after it. So... You know, Irish is, when I speak Irish in Dublin, I don't really feel it in my belly, in my stomach. I'm comfortable speaking English in Dublin or in Kilkenny or 
Belfast. But if okay. I speak English in the west of Ireland, I don't feel right in my stomach. You know, so we have this summer house in Kerry that we've been going to. Well, I mean, the O'Rahilly, my great granduncle who founded the volunteers, he first built the first one in 1915 for my cousins. And then we built ours in 1924, 25. And we've been going there ever since. But I don't go there so much anymore because it feels I don't feel comfortable speaking English there. So if I if, if I have friends or my partner who just speak English, I'm not comfortable. It's a visceral belly thing. That is a place, the land, my body needs to speak Irish in that place. So it's really rooted and visceral. Um, and so that's one thing, the idea of place and language. And the, I mean, I, again, I was so lucky because of my inheritance that I had a connection with that place. I'm not from West Kerry, but because I would have spent a quarter of every year there, I have a rootedness. I'm known there. My people are known there and I know the people there. But if one ha the next best thing, obviously, is to learn the language in New York or in Dublin or in Kilkenny. And yet, I mean, it sounds elitist to me to say, but I think it's different. I think it's different speaking it in a place where you know, for the last few hundred years, it hasn't been spoken. It's harder there. It's a more of an uphill battle. That's mm. one thing. The second thing you're asking, and again, you know, I teach this Irish language course online, this nine-week course called Skullskarta. And one of the key things we're always asking people is, what does Irish feel like in your body? How do you, do you dream differently? Do you think differently? And so mm. it's the question you're asking me, Jim, and it's a hard question. And I always feel bad when I ask other people, because how do we know how we dream? How we know? I just know that, if I'm speaking Irish with other Irish speakers who speak it easily, there's a there's a relief, there's a release, there's a relaxation, there's an ease, there's an expansiveness. There's this mm. like oh, kindling, this like warmth of joy that comes with it. But mm. I get that too with English. If you're if you're people who you're if you're speaking with people who you're totally in tune with speaking English mm. and you are vibing and there is this energy, then you have that same flow. You know, it is not a, an elite Irish language thing, but it's it's you know when you speak Irish with other people who have that same level of Irish and who you feel part of a a globe a circle a warmth a a a, 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 a Lee, something comfortable and homely and it allows for an honesty and an expansiveness and as I as we as I discovered as I explored in the book thirty two words for field you can also talk um, a lot easier about some elements you can talk about about sexuality, about the body, about these sort of earthy, mm, physical, real, um, sweaty things a lot easier in Irish. Like, there's no there's no embarrassment about talking about piss or shit in, in Irish. It's just natural in the same <laughs> way as within a farming family it would be. And mm. sex is a, you know, sex, a bula lacher, no bula crecken, hitting leather or hitting skin. There's no shame in any of those words. The shame in Irish is to do with words of the devil and that type of thing, the bad energy, the bad forces, the puka. They are shameful. They are not shameful, but they're taboo and that they have energy around them. And you wouldn't, you know, curse someone or you wouldn't use a word like devil lightly if you're speaking Irish uh, in the in the old energy or in the Gwaltacht or among people who are really comfortable with Irish. You know, again, yeah. Um, whereas you can easily ta start talking. I've just been collecting vagina and vulva words um, in, in Irish. Um, and there's just such a richness of them. And none of them are, well, they are, but most of them aren't crude or vulgar. They're just fun. In the same way as when I spend time in Africa, there's also, there's a real honesty and a rootedness and an openness about talking about sex there. 
that we just mm. don't have, particularly in post-Catholic Ireland in, in mm. the English language. That's interesting because a lot of people would attribute that to, you know, obviously the Catholic shame. But you're also suggesting that inherently in the language is a, a limitation. In the English language, yeah, we know English is a prudish language. Like we know, as you say, that um, the, the the church, the Irish church, particularly from the 18th, 19th century on, was ridiculously prudish. But we know that the English language, as it has been spoken since the Victorian era, even the Tudor, well, at least after the Tudor era, had that similar prudishness, that similar control and lack of contact with the body. Both the English culture and the Irish church were ashamed of the body, ashamed of sexuality. And when you speak to mm. any native culture, they just say like, sex was what brought us here. Sex is the greatest. It is the energy. So really, you know, and our pagan religion, it seems it's hard to define anything about a pre-Christian religion because it wasn't written down. But it was all about the the creation of birth, the fertility of birth, the fecundity, which is why, you know, in Bullock, why this, this the, the seed in the belly was the first great festival around now, around February, or how all of the passage tombs, the Newgrange and Nowth and Douth, they're all built of these pregnant bellies, these chambers in the soil in which a long phallus of the sun went down. They're basically big wounds in which the, the, the erect penis goes down. There was no scent. These were things were celebrated as magic, as as beautiful, as bountiful, in no way, in no way shameful. Mm. You know, I, I don't know if you've come across... Um, and I'm sure you know the in the name of the Father, the Des Bishop documentary, but I remember he spoke after he kind of reached close to fluency he came back to Dublin and he said that he felt that he was speaking the language of his soul and because obviously his ancestors were Irish and um, yeah before we move on I just wanted to ask you about like does does that really resonate with you does that like yeah I enjoy it because I know you speak several other languages like is it just this this um profound connection with where you are from or who you are when you're when the words are coming out of your mouth compared to French or German mm. um as I said like for me I've always had this connection with spirits so when I was young I just knew there were other beings and so the physical world is sort of hard for me to deal with although I'm pretty I'm getting I've got a lot better at it uh, um but I feel so much more at ease in this expanse of non-physical, a world beyond physical, in which in which you know non-rational things can happen and non-time things that aren't confined by the linearity and the confines of time and space, and it is a lot easier to talk about those things and to imagine those things and to think in terms of those things when I'm speaking in Irish language. I'd imagine it's the same with any truly ancient language and I don't really speak you know the rest of the languages I speak are modern uh, rational languages from the that were influenced and molded by the age of enlightenment and by the rational reason thinking that came with those so the only old language or ancient language I know is Irish and I do love the expansiveness and malleability and subtlubucht, the bendability that is in the, the, the in it I would say one thing though you know there it does seem to be this yearning among just certain amount of people but a significant amount of people to learn the language or to engage with the language again and i do feel strongly that there's some that there's ways that we can get these 
freedoms and openness and expansiveness of the language without having to learn it fluently, without having to go back and do every grammar and spelling and vocab. I'm finding even in this Skullscarta, this course, once people engage with it at all, they seem to find themselves thinking in different ways, in more expansive mm. ways. In the same way as if you take on a, a spiritual practice, you know, a Native American one or an Indian one or a, or a Chinese one, you find yourself thinking in different ways just because it opens up doorways. So I do yeah. believe that just even a cursory engagement with the Irish language can make us break down the paradigm, the strict linear thinking and the narrow parameters and constricted mindset of, of English. Thanks for that. And are people, this course that you're running, is this for like straight up beginners as well? Or is it for people who have a, already a bit of a knowledge around the language? No, it's for beginners. Um, it's and it's not just about learning the language. It's about it's a course. It's a nine week online core course, and it it looks at the culture, the mindset, the land, the spirit, the energy of the Irish language for beginners. And so at the end of it, you don't come away with fluent Irish, but there is like I think it's a two hour once a week, and there's about twenty. 25 minutes Irish language session, language session and then weekly sort of other things other nights of the week so it's but it's it's not about learning it's about all the other things all the how the language and the way of thinking Irish can unlock our, our ways and so I've done it we've run it for about three times I think that we will probably do it twice this year as well um and yeah it's just a it's just what well, I mean but there's so many great resources now for learning Irish on the internet and just so many wonderful Instagram accounts and emails uh, and sort of web pages and just individuals doing really passionate ways of, of trying to teach Irish. Mm-hmm. Because it also sounds a lot like how we should be doing it, right? Because I remember I've heard you speak about this kind of shame that Irish people have for not learning the language mm-hmm. and, you know, regardless of how much money we pump into, you know, doing it in schools, the fluency is not really increasing how we speak, like how we, in fact, it seems almost that there's a a, a stagnant approach or a stagnant feeling towards the language. Whereas, I'm, I, I mean, I have the hint that why people are interested in your books and why I came across your, like felt so strongly with your writing is that you're saying it's more, right? Whereas we're, in school, we're just going, this is the language, you should know it, kind of, and that's about it. We're not saying this is opening doors. You are you are having a greater connection to the to your you know great 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 grandfather with this language, and all of a sudden, even just hearing you speak about it makes me go, Jesus! Like this is this is so much so much more different than how it was in school. Yeah, um, yeah, and and again, I'm doing it, but there's so many other people. There does seem to be something rising in only in the last four or five years in Ireland, so many people are thinking, wait there, we do happen to have an indigenous language that is so attuned to nature, so attuned to the landscape, is so attuned to the opening of our of our spirit. And that is something we would like to engage with. And as you said, it's just a shame that the education system wasn't teaching it in that way. It was just appropriate. It was back then, you know, we our consciousness hadn't reached that point. There really does seem to be this rising in energy in the last few years. And so it's only natural mm. that our attitude to the Irish language would be in tune with that, would be in chime. So I've no doubts that the way we teach it in education system is going to change, but it's going to take a while just because there's so much hang up and so much legacy of old ways of doing things, of of the the poverty that we associated the Irish language with, the backwardness, the lack of opportunity, the appalling mm. suffering and 
um, constrictions that Irish people suffered because we didn't have money. We didn't have ways of escaping the penury, the darkness, the oppression, the sexual oppression, the spiritual oppression, the the the, the um, health oppression and the financial oppression. All of that was helped by actually turning away from Irish to English. So we have benefited mm. hugely by going to English. And it's very fortunate that we're just at this time where we realise, OK, we are now a lot more comfortable and we st- the Irish language is still alive in the Gweltoch, still nourished, still with this breath of energy into it. So it isn't too late. We can go back and decide what we want to do with it now. Um, as you said, mm. in some way, my, you know, these, the book or that the Irish language course is a good way of engaging with it, but it's limited. One, a book is not an ideal way. An audio book would be a lot better where you can actually hear the words. And the Skullskarta, mm. the nine week online course is good, but it's online. And the beauty, this is a visceral physical language. So the one example of a person who was teaching Irish in a wonderful way was Dermot Ling, the uh, Wexford hurler who gave up hurling and set up something called Wild Irish Retreats. I don't think he's going to do many more of them, but hopefully he will. They'll be online. Wild Irish Retreats. He brings you down to West Kerry. You eat organic food that he's grown himself on the side of the land in West Kerry. And you learn language, you learn the, your language lessons are learned while playing hurling on the strand or <laughs> while doing a sauna or swimming or doing yoga on the beach or climbing a mountain. So, you know, that's going to break down the the hang-ups. If we go out into mm. the places and do the cutting turf, doing the things that were associated with the language, then our body almost has this kinetic memory. It mm. up, breaks open the, the strictures, the claustrophobia that we associate with the classroom, and we, 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 we free ourselves. Mm. That's beautiful, the way you put that there. Even how you described it, it was almost as if, Irish people have uh, benefited in nearly every way possible that can be measured as a result of the shift to the English language. But on the things that can't be measured, we're struggling, right? We're really struggling and we have that kind of pull. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about mythology as well. I wanted to talk a little bit about mythology. Um, you said something really powerful on one of your conversations with Blind Boy where you said, Truth is not above reason, but it is beyond it. And you make several points throughout um, the most recent book, Listen to the Land Speak, about how you almost like prefix it. You go like, or sometimes you do it at the end of a kind of mythological story. You say, now I know this sounds wild. And I know our minds have been trained to say, well, that obviously didn't happen. And this didn't happen. But there is profound meaning and truth in there, depending on how we want to um look at it um and unpack it and i wish it would be great if you could speak a little more on on that yeah like i laughed when you said when you quoted that truth is not beyond reason but above it the truth is not above reason but beyond it sorry truth is not above because like that was a line that i got from my jesuit priests in my school in education (laughs) whenever you ask difficult questions about the church it also faith is not above reason but beyond it and um, I've stolen their idea. But actually, we did, in Ireland, we did get a benefit from the church. We got many, very many benefits from the church, as well as, you know, the oppression. But one element was that we've always believed in magical thinking in Ireland because we've relied, we, we believed in it in our in our um, animistic, in our pagan ways, and in the early church that was so still interested in magic and in nature worshipping. But even in the church that was given to us after the famine, the 19th and 20th century oppressive church it always believed in magical thinking to a degree and so 
it's a lot easier for us to accept an idea like that, truth is not above reason but beyond it, than it would be for someone who is strictly in the, the Enlightenment thinking, the reason rational thinking of Germany, of France, the sort of more Protestant um, thinking, the, that everything was based on objectivity, on money, on financial gain. We always have this sense of mystery, this dream. And the beauty where you see that is in the nineteen the schools collection, the nineteen thirty seven and thirty eight schools folklore collection, where you know every kid in the country uh, was sent out to their oldest people in the community to ask them about mythology, to ask them about fairies, to ask them about magic in the landscape. And everyone came back with millions of stories. So we know right up until the thirties and forties, um magic was a key, as a natural part of our world. And just we again we gave a sense of that from thinking about our grandparents and the the fairies and things. So, um, so I'm like between two things. I had that. We all have that from our grandparents and our great grandparents, absolutely believing in a magical world. Uh, but then, and we also have a little bit of from the church and the priests constantly, you know, telling us that on Easter Sunday the sun would dance in the sky and in truth in in celebration of the birth of Jesus. And we accepted that, that this great burning star at the centre of our solar system would suddenly begin to dance. Um, and then, but I'm also a product, and all of us in Ireland are now a product of that rational educational system where we were told, don't think like that. Or if you think like that, don't bring it into objective discourse. And because I would have spent so much time on my own uh, in my life and so much time up in the Himalayas, like, you know, chanting or, or uh, over in Africa or doing things on my own with my in just talking to my spirit guides. I've always had those two worlds. So I go in to a meeting with the Irish Times or with RTE for 20 years and I think, do you have any idea the craziness that's in my head at the moment? Like the, the but it was always positive. I'd never had like darkness or depression. Luckily, in this lifetime, I'm sure I've had huge amounts of darkness in other lifetimes. But it's sort of elated. Um, it's just connection with uh, with this loving spirit that I have. So um, I'm comfortable with those two things. But the first time, you know, I tried to present a TV program when my brother came out to India in 1997 and he wanted me to talk to talk about India for this TV series on the TG Car, the new Irish language station that was just setting up. And I started talking about how there is God in every leaf and how every you know branch is connected and the world has energy coming up through us and we're all one. And he was the one who just shut the camera off and just shouted at me and said, you need to talk sense. You need to be pragmatic. So uh, when I'm writing the books, I want to communicate some really far-fetched ideas, the same ideas that I did when I was this idealistic, innocent, uh, you know, blissed out young backpacker in the up in the Himalayas in in nineteen um, nineteen eighty nineteen ninety six. Um, I want to communicate those ideas, those ideas that I get in the deeps of my soul and my head when I'm walking. But I know that I have a there's a rational professional editor, and there's going to be reviewers in newspapers, and so um, I need to, I need to bring that group along too. So we are, all of us, I think, are finding this, especially in this age where so many of us are waking up to a degree of energy or magic or the unexplainable in our lives. And we're trying to think, how do we... How do we serve the two beaches, the two strands, the two... How do we bring these two, these things together? Um, and uh, yeah, I think all of us are slowly getting more comfortable with it. That we know that there's that there's an expansiveness and a magic and a wonder and a mystery inside of ourselves. And we know also we need to sometimes be rational and pragmatic.
I have a few questions just because that was a lovely answer. One of them is um, you mentioned the idea of of past lives. Is that is there is there evidence in in terms of your research to suggest that on this island that was a, a strong belief of ours before Christianity? No, there isn't. And it wouldn't be a big belief in me. Reincarnation wouldn't be a key element of me. I'd accept it as a potential. Um, (laughs) I think there's, you know, there's so much evidence on this island that we believed in a in gods in and that basically everything had a god and particularly i suppose the key elements that we know the sun was this major god and the sun went away in darkness and left us into pit of darkness and then re-emerged and also from so many of the rituals and the sculptures and the and the writings it seemed the land was also a mother god and uh, or a goddess and um and these are things that we see in so many other indigenous and native tribes around the world. That basically this this communication between the sun and the earth, the sun warming the soil, giving food, um, was a, a key element. And again, you know, when we're saying anything about this animistic pre-Christian pagan faith, it's so hard to be certain about about anything. But no, I haven't seen much about about incarnation. And again, I will accept as I said, incarnation to a degree in the same way I, was, I would accept mythologies to a degree. I don't believe in mythologies. I don't necessarily believe that I incarnated, but I do pr- profoundly believe that there is a spirit beyond me, that I am just a physical body. I have no proof of that, but it's just in every cell of my being from the moment I was born, that was just clear to me. I did not identify. But again, that could be a limitation because I don't identify with this body, with this incarnation. I see it as a temporary thing and I see that something bigger and beyond but that could be a mental abherency it could be just a, a default in me or a, a fault in me I mean okay and um I get the impression that it was yeah like you said from from you growing up you had this this connection right like it, and I'd imagine when you came home to Ireland it wasn't very difficult for you to come across uh mythology and to be able to decipher um potential meanings or what's really trying to what's really trying to happen here, but have you come across other people that it they have struggled with it, where because of the conditioning that it it just sounds too absurd. They're just like yeah, potentially there's something that I can't measure out there, and but like it it doesn't start with this stuff. It like I'm interested. Have you come across that process? Mm. I mean, I have found it hard to engage with the mythology. I wouldn't say that I was naturally, that I immediately warmed to Irish mythology. Irish mythology is difficult to connect with. First, it's very long-winded. It's very, it doesn't really make rational sense. It can be very boring and uninteresting, but it's been presented to us in bad ways, I think. I think we're only at the very beginning. This is like year one of us maybe reinterpreting the mythology to make some sense. Like I think all of us, we there's some mythologies of certain cultures that if we get in little bits, we can find charming. Like some some Native American stories, some, some stories from South America, African stories, some Japanese stories, simple mythologies that seem warm and immediate to us. Irish mythology is just full of bloodletting and beheadings and violence and rape and loads of incest and and just darkness, you know. So it's just, but that's because we know all of our mythology, you know, well, most of our mythology was given to us by the church. It was written down in manuscripts by monks. And so we have to question, what was the agenda? Why were the monks writing it, deciding to write these pagan myths into their Christian 
um, books, did they want to warp them to make us make them seem more disgusting so we turn our backs on them? Or were they genuinely trying to preserve uh, a culture that they found valuable? But we also have another strand of mythology that has remained pure, that was not infiltrated or infused with this religious perspective, the monks writing it down. And that's the oral literature of the Gwaltachts, of the Irish-speaking area. And that's why the Gwaltachts, again, are so important. And that's why the Irish and the Gwaltachts is something very different from outside. These were people in their folklore, in the Litriach Bale, in the oral literature, kept these stories alive um, for themselves. Now, of course, they would have changed them a little bit each generation, depending on the audience, because there was a freedom. But there was a, in all mythology, there's a core, there's a core truth or a core energy that doesn't get, that a shanachi, that a storyteller won't change and it'll keep them pure. Um, but even those stories, the the stories that didn't go through the, um, the, convert the the yeah the the disformation and the the confusion of the whole um middle ages and the dark ages and the church meaning even though you know the stories from the from the from the Gweltacht, from the oral tradition still are unpalatable to us they're long-winded they're dull so i do think that it requires it's going to require academics scholars and all of us with a sense of intuition going back into those stories and trying to find where the truth lies in them and again, I'm really being guided by this in this by native people, by particularly these indigenous people that I'm working with in, in the States and in Canada, who just say, you know, a lot of these, particularly in Canada, a lot of the indigenous people, they've all gone through the residential schools. They've had their culture obliterated from them for one generation. And they need to go back to the stories and back to the land and really ask their ancestors how to interpret them. And that's, I think there's an element of that we're going to have to do in Ireland. And that can be, embarrassing and awkward and mawkish because sometimes we're going to get the wrong answers. We're going to get self, we're going to get egotistical or self-serving answers. Um, but I think it is a process we're going to have to do with our stories so that they are immediately engaging. But so as you say, just to say, yeah, I don't immediately engage with the stories, okay. but I do find it easy to engage with with spirit and just with that, with the energy of the land. If I okay. If I go beyond my mind and just breathe into the land. Thanks for that. That sounds like a pretty beautiful collaboration then that you have with some indigenous people from North America. Is it that basically you would share a story and kind of ask how they might interpret it? Is, is, is that how it would kind of work? I don't know yet. It's all a very early what? thing. It just began when I was in doing my show Iran Gazim, you know, the show where I talk about these concepts while baking bread and the audience churned butter. And I first met these uh, indigenous elders in Alberta and in, in Edmonton in Canada. And I've since met more. And it's going to be a big focus for me from now on. So I'm going to go to Australia to work with some Aboriginal people in March. And then I'm going to go back to Canada and to the States in in autumn to do more of this. So, yeah, it's re I'm going to do a vision quest too um, later wow. on in the year. So it's, yeah, I'm going into a world that I'm very inexperienced of and I don't know and I'm sure I'm going to make mistakes and go down cul-de-sacs. But I believe that maybe it seems to me that some of the answers might be doing, not for me, for all of us to go back and sense our intuition, to get out onto the land of Ireland. That land, we all probably know that land is potent. We all know when we go to a stone circle or even a cliff or a mountaintop, there seems to be learnings there and knowledge there when we're on a river. Um, we're all going to need to breathe and spend more time in these places and then get over the 
the, the, the discomfort of not knowing, of feeling a phony, of feeling you're just making mm. it all up. Mm. Uh, quick question. By any chance, do you know of an author called Bill Plotkin? No, no. Did you say Bill Plotkin? I don't. Yeah. Um, just because he uh, he wrote a few books. His most recent book was called The Journey of Soul Initiation. Mm-hmm. And he talks about vision quests in, in the desert in, in Arizona, I believe. But uh, he... And you were the only people that I've come across that have um, kind of placed a lot of emphasis on that, on that almost the closest we can get to a quote unquote truth is true. these kind of metaphors, these kind of mythologies, because you, you can't just write down succinctly here, here's the truth. That's what it is right there. It has to be alluded to and suggested by, but it can't be pinned down. So, um, yeah, yeah. No, it's, yeah, because... There's nothing for us to do ultimately. I really feel strongly. It's it's an aware it's an energy awareness or enlightenment arises through a person, and we never do it. Let's say in the same way as I don't know do you, but I see this huge amount of of an arising of a sort of a female energy, of a strong healing energy. And this whole, the fact that the government created a bank holiday for women for the first time this year, there's so many, it's not not women really, it is female energy within the male. Nobody's doing that. Nobody created that happen. That was just something, it was something that even in the 70s, people used to talk, the age of Aquarius, there is going to be an arising, there's going to be a a more encompassing, you know, sense of our world, more compassionate time. And it does, I see a lot of, you could point out a lot of the opposite to me, a lot of the, the, how we're getting darker and more divided. But I do see a lot of these elements and positive elements and we're not doing it. It's happening beyond us. So there's, the ego, the human always wants to be at the centre of things, but that's not necessarily the case. We are part of a movement and so mm-hmm. it's going to come through us and we just need to allow that. And so there's no book that's going to turn us on. It's it's happening in ourselves, in our DNA. It's happening in the air. And so we just need to be open to it. And sometimes a movie, sometimes a story, sometimes a song, sometimes just a good shower or a swim or a bath can can help us to open more to it. Um, but there's nothing we need to do. We don't need to read a particular mythology. We don't need to read the Irish language. We don't need to do a course or a, or a quest. Um but if we feel called to do these things, then yeah. why not? It's only going to enrich us. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, just a few more questions before you go. This has been great. Thank you, Mike. Um, one was, um, what has your kind of research or your recent delve into mythology given you? Like, how has it changed you know, I don't know. I think in the last four or five years, you've kind of really spent a lot of time with this. Can I ask how it's changed your kind of day to day life? Yeah, um, it's it's made. So she said, as I said, I was out chainsawing today and I have my herb garden and I have my hens and my bees. And so I've always been more or less connected to this land, these 10 acres I have. But since really engaging with mythology, it has made so clear to me how the land is this goddess, is this this um this great female energetic source that interacts with the sun and and gives us life. And I think where it really brought home to me was all the mythology around Loch Gur in Limerick, Um, this area which has this massive stone circle, the biggest stone circle in Ireland, and has this hill rising out of a lake that was thought to be the pregnant belly of the goddess Anya. The, one of our, this goddess of brightness of light. She's basically the luminous sun spreading up from the south each each year um, from the equator. And um, 
that connection between this, this Anya, this shining bright goddess force and the land and actually being able to walk on her pregnant belly and realizing, God, when I would have thought that was something I was only going to come across among Aboriginal people or among the people of Bolivia or Titicaca, this idea that the land is a being, is a sacred being. And yet we have it. Somehow it's been preserved that that Munster, the you know the province of Munster, has this goddess belly. It has her breasts, her 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 milk-filled breasts in the Paps of Danu in Killarney. Um, and so it's now really easy when I'm taking a train or driving across Ireland to see I am driving across a goddess. I am driving, I am and when you think about that, suddenly the land melts away and you really you become multi-dimensional multi-dimensional, or at least it aids me to think in a more multi-dimensional way. Because it's no longer roads and hedges and, and rail tracks. It is this expression of uh divine energy. Um, and then the sun above is this sun interacting, is this God interacting with it. It just becomes all so much more rich and multifaceted. I'd also imagine the kind of, you know, the egoic worries are easier t- to put on the back burner. <laughs> Once you imagine you're driving on a goddess. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it, it's that it's the timelessness that mythology gives us and that expansiveness. Like my brain is capable of going down so many narrow, small minded thinking of how much what money do I need? What timing do I need? What's my, my problem here? And yet when I get into that infinite way of thinking of myth, good myth, free hard myth, as I said, a lot of Irish myth is just really, it seems petty and small and warring. So and if you were asking me, well, where do we find these new good myths? I haven't seen a book yet, but they're going to come. There's so many people engaging with the old myths and realizing, okay, let's strip back all of the Baroque, except oh, the the ridiculousness, the the medieval complexity, and let's find let's find the simplicity. Like there's a pregnant belly of a goddess in in Lochgar, or Clathga, the great hill of Ward in Athboy, which was always the 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 hill of. Um, of change of Samhain, a hill where another goddess gave birth to her 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 sons, her twin sons, and then sort of sparked a whole new energy in that part of of Ireland. Um, I think these things can can only free our our minds. Mm, absolutely, they it really does seem like they can sh- shift the well being. You know, in a in a in a culture that's all about talking about well being now. That kind of just even holding up to the possibility that th- that this is what's happening in a kind of ungraspable world, or this is what happened previously, makes things a little lighter, no? Exactly, yeah, and like everything in the conventional commercial um, limited world is trying to f- make us forget that we're here to seek enlightenment. That ultimately we're trying to see beyond the veil, to see that love, to see that expansiveness, that infinity that we have inside ourselves, that ultimate power in love, and that all other beings do, and that the whole, possibly the whole of nature and energy is trying to aid us with. Um, but once we cross, once we Consider the myths related to the rivers and, you know, the uh, so many of our Irish rivers are female or, again, divine beings. And the main ones, the Boyne and the Shannon, are all about female, divine, young beings looking, seeking enlightenment, seeking expansion, seeking connection with all of their different attributes and elements so they can be bigger than themselves. This idea of the a limited being trying to be grander and bigger and more beautiful and more uh, multifaceted. And that's the key story that's at the heart of Shunna, the goddess that forms the Shannon River. She seeks 
enlightenment and more creativity and musicality and multidimensionality in Kun as well, in this well of other of all sources and all life and all wisdom, as do, as does um Bowen, the goddess who goes to the well of Sagus, which is the well which gives birth to the Boyne. Like they're beautiful stories about beings seeking enlightenment, seeking more power. And it's what all of us want, you know, but we get caught up and limited and distracted by by other things. Mm. And it also seems like there's um, our, our need for control, right? You have this beautiful chapter on rivers and towards the end you talk about how we've pretty much put a dam in every river in Ireland or if not nearly all of them. And like even just to hold the possibility for me was was really enjoyable to kind of hold the possibility that what if rivers needed to spill? You know, what if they needed to overflow? What if there was something there? Or, you know what I mean? Instead of saying, well, we can, can kind of control that and control this without considering what are we, what are we losing by con- trying to control nature. Yeah, it's a beautiful thought. And it's a thought that the whole nation is now waking up to gradually with regard to how we're going to farm this tiny island. And so we still have the government and the IFI saying, the IFA, the Irish Farm Association saying, we are going to carry on as normal. We are going to, you know, um, control the fields, control the water, control the land. We are going to create these dead pastures of ryegrass so that we can produce money from milk and beef. And then every other force on the in the world saying, you can't do that anymore. And from a financial, from a carbon, from a climate point of view, but also nature itself is saying, we're going to flood you out of it if you do this. We're going to scorch your, your land. So we're slowly, even the most rational minded minions in the Department of Agriculture and the IFI are realizing, actually, we're going to have to give up some of nature, some of this land that we profit from and give it back to nature. Um, and let nature do what it wants to do, because ultimately it's going to heal us as well. And so I, I'm on the board of, a, of an organization in, in County Clare called Home Tree, where we are just planting a, a, a an Atlantic rainforest along the west coast of Ireland, starting small. We're starting with acres in County Clare, and then we just bought another 260 acres in Galway. And now we've bought another 80 acres in Sligo and can to create this continuous Atlantic rainforest. Now, the government, a lot of we've been talking to members of the government and they're sort of acknowledging that everything west of the Shannon will be left back to nature in some way, that it's not producing enough money, um, you know, the, the the type of farming that has been done in the west. So a lot of Ireland is going to go back to nature one way or the other. But we're still in, you know, again, sort of year zero of this. So a lot of people haven't accepted this and no doubt there'll be a struggle. There's so much invested money that there's going to be a pushback from the old energy that is going to do its best to derail it and destroy it. And it'll be a swing, you know, the pendulum backwards and forwards for a few years or for a few decades. But inevitably, um, Ireland is going to be a lot wilder with pockets of productivity. Um, And that's... You know, and then we decide, OK, what are wild animals do we bring back? And when we have those wild animals, we decide how do we want to, how is that going to change our way of thinking when we're mm. in a, a wilder, a wilder land? Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it's there is there's there's plenty of signs to suggest that things are moving in that direction. And fingers crossed it's sooner yeah. rather I'm, than later. Yeah, and you say, so you could say that is a, it's an idealistic and it's a hopeful vision I have. But the alternative is we're wiped out. 
So it's yeah. one or the other, you know, and we could just as easily focus on the inevitability that these things won't happen. Rationally, they wouldn't happen. Rationally, there's no reason why banks or big business would give up the stranglehold, the profit, the way they have managed to take, um, to exploit and take control of all the natural resources in the world. So the only thing that's going to stop that rational inevitability is this irrational almost magical thinking of that there being this energy rising that is making all of us tune into a, a grander and a bigger and a more expansive way of thinking. Mm. It's hard for me to say which, is it the expansive thinking or is it the ra more rational reasoned reality um, that is going to, you know, which is going to win out. In my core, in my heart, I, I you know, I'm not, I believe that it, that we are on this, in this, in this age of, of, of exponentially speeded up enlightenment and new ways of thinking. But I could be wrong. Who am I? Yeah. Well, um, what comes to mind is I don't know if you've come across uh, Charles Eisenstein, but he, yeah. he wrote he wrote this book called uh, the Be the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. That's right. And it, it it really feels like it needs to be heart centered, right? Because the mind will say it's just not the right logical move, you know. Um. But this has been fantastic, Mankon. Thanks a million. Um. The last question I just wanted to ask you. Uh, was what lesson is life teaching you right now? Mm. <laughs> it's teaching me to be uncertain. So I normally plan everything. You know, I would have given seven years to writing the listen to the 32 words for field book. I live a very quiet, um, premeditated life. I used to, I you know, I've been living in my little first a straw bale house and now this little house I'm living in now since 2002 on my 10 acres. And I do very, I give, I'm, I reflect and give a lot of thought before everything I do. In the last few years, you know, things have obviously speeded up with the reaction to these books. And now only since last year, this realization that I need to vision quest, I need to get out into the land, I need to connect with indigenous people. There's no way I would have ever done that in the past because I thought, OK, I could do that. But let me give a decade to slowly building it up, learning about it, reading all the books, re learning languages and explaining. I it seems there's not time for that, not in a sense of limited time, but it's just all these opportunities are being put. These magical opportunities have been put in my way to step into this now. So the life lesson I'm having at the moment is just to trust, to trust ultimately, even to the extreme thing, that idea of a vision quest, just to give away, get rid of everything and seeing what comes up, what arises without any crutches. Amazing. Beautiful. I look forward to hearing how it goes. It won't be comfortable, you know, because it's not in my, <laughs> it's not the way I normally operate, but uh, yeah, I'm up for it. They'll they'll be they'll be clawing and they'll be holding on. <laughs> you know? That's it. Yeah. yeah. No, but but thanks so much for this. It's been a real pleasure. Appreciate it. Ah, thank you, Jim. It's great to talk. Thanks. Thank you.